John, appreciate that. Well, it is Palm Sunday, and this morning officially begins Holy Week, in which um, we make our way towards Good Friday and the death of Jesus, and of course, Resurrection Sunday uh, next week, in which we celebrate um, the fact that he, he rose from the dead. And uh, this morning, in preparation for communion, which is a fitting way to enter uh, Holy Week, um, I'm going to be reflecting on, on a portion of, of the Gospel of Luke, and I just wanted to keep it this morning about Jesus, um, not so much about us, but I hope in the end um, you'll find your heart moved to trust him more fully as a result of, of this reflection out of, out of the Gospel of Luke. But before I get there, I just wanted to say one thing about this, this um, what we're doing this Sunday, or Sunday, Friday, Good Friday, Forsaken. Um, some of you have gone through the Stations of the Cross in the past. We call it Experiencing the Passion. And that particular um, set of, of rooms and events was very event-oriented oriented of, of the events that led up to the crucifixion of Jesus. And, and we switched it up a, a bit um, to give it a kind of a fresh understanding. Um, this time it's tied more to the relational aspect. Um, this Friday. So you walk through five different stations, and the idea is you get to feel by both reading scripture and there's a meditation in each room and also um, a prayer. You get to feel the different layers of Jesus being forsaken. Um, Forsaken by his country, forsaken by justice, forsaken by his best friends, and then then the, the final scene as far as the forsaken theme goes is that um, he was forsaken by God himself um, because he bore upon his shoulders our sin. So I want to encourage you um, to come this Friday from 6 to 8. Just come whenever. It's a, it's a kind of a self-guided tour. And it's a great, great uh, place to invite people who don't know Jesus to because it's non-confrontational. They read it on their own um, as they work through the... The, the little booklet that we give out, and it's a great way to help people experience, even for Christians, to experience just what Jesus went through for us. It inspires us to just recognize how much he loved us. So that's, that's this Friday. That's what forsaken is, to feel what it was like um, for Jesus to be forsaken. Let me pray for us as we, uh, as we get ready to come to the Word and also the communion table. Father in heaven, we are grateful for your steadfast love and faithfulness. Lord, it is your steadfast love and faithfulness that is the backbone of the entire Bible. It is the backbone of all of the covenants that you made with your people, your steadfast love and faithfulness. And Lord, your steadfast love and faithfulness came to us in living flesh, in the person of Jesus, so that we could see your heart, that we could understand your steadfast love towards those who willfully walked away from you, rebelled against you, and um, turned aside to their own way, and and yet you came after us because of your steadfast love and faithfulness. Lord, this whole week is a display of your steadfast love and your faithfulness. And so I pray as we enter into this, this week, as we meditate upon your word, as we think about what took place on Good Friday, which was good for us, horrific for Jesus, Um, and the resurrection, I I pray that you would convince our hearts of your steadfast love and your faithfulness. Lord, we rejoice in who you are. I pray in these few moments that I have to declare your word. I pray that your spirit and power would um, connect with those here who know you 
And for those who may not have a true relationship with you, they've never experienced what it means to have a faith relationship with Jesus. I pray for open eyes and for them to see that this is in fact true. Um, It's not a myth. It's not a wish. It's a historical reality and the way in which you have reached out to us to bring us home. So empower this time, Lord, and also the bread and the cup as we get ready to take it. In Jesus' name I pray. Amen. Palm Sunday, as some of you know, is the day in which Jesus uh, entered Jerusalem. And um, I thought it would be fitting to to read just a a small snippet of, of the Gospel of Luke that talks about his entry into Jerusalem, which it wasn't just a mere historical event, it's a, it's a, it's a significant event. And, um, and so allow me to just read a portion from Luke chapter 19, verses 37 um, through 40. The text reads, And he, referring to Jesus, was drawing near to Jerusalem. Already on the way down the Mount of Olives, the whole multitude of his disciples began to rejoice and praise God with a loud voice for all the mighty works that they had seen, saying, and here they quote Psalm 118, Blessed is the king who comes in the name of the Lord. Peace in heaven and glory in the highest. That, by the way, is, is kind of a bookend to the angels that declared the birth of Jesus, said almost the same thing, and here we are near the end of his life, and his disciples are saying, glory in the highest. Verse 39, and some of the Pharisees in the crowd said to, said to him, Teacher, rebuke your disciples. He, he answered, I, I tell you, if these were silent, the very stones would cry out. The creation would erupt if people keep, kept quiet. As I said, I, I, I think this is a highly significant event. Um, Jesus' disciples, he's, he's amassed a multitude of people who had experienced him, followed him, seen his miracles, listened to his teaching, teachings, and they were following him, and they were going with him up to Jerusalem to celebrate the Passover, only um, this was going to be a Passover like no other Passover. And here they are, they're, they're lining the street, entering to Jerusalem, and, and they're proclaiming, This Psalm 18, which I believe is a messianic psalm, and they're saying, blessed is the king who comes in the name of the Lord. Now, we in the 21st century don't feel the huge anticipation that they would have felt at that particular moment. I mean, most of us these days hear about Jesus' second coming, and and, and we're hoping for it, but imagine how it would feel to be on the precipice of his return. We would just be we would be stoked, you know, like to see the, the sky part and to see the king of kings return and uh, all of creation made new and so forth. We'd be stoked. Well, that's kind of what this event was for his disciples is they knew that, that, a, that, a, that, a, that a king would come from the line of David. And, and it had been generations. It had been centuries. And these promises that someday this ruler, this king would come. And, and they believed that Jesus was the guy and he was entering Jerusalem. It's that, you know, renowned city where God chose to place his name. I don't think there's any other greater city in terms of religion than Jerusalem. I mean, it serves as, as kind of a capital of three major world relig- religions even to this day. And here we see Jesus entering in and they're praising him as their incoming king. So it's, it's an amazing, amazing event. They're, they're, they're welcoming in the king, King Jesus. Now... Before I talk about Jesus as king, I want to ask you what might seem like a silly question. But I want you to pause and I want you to answer it. Um, 
as honestly as you can. So here's a silly question. Why follow Jesus? Why? Why follow him? Why trust him? Why make him the center around which you shape your whole life and all of your dreams and all of your understanding of reality? Why, why put him at the center of everything? Like, honestly, why? Why do you? Why do you come? Why do you listen to me right now? Why do you read the scriptures? Why do you believe in him? Why do you follow him? And, and I realize we can throw a lot of Sunday school answers at that, 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 that question. Sometimes those Sunday school answers are, of course, the right ones, but sometimes they can be about as far from your heart as Pluto is from the sun. Like, you know the truth of it, but it doesn't live here. Like, what actually moves your soul to say, I want Jesus to be my king, to whom I'd surrender my entire life, and who I'd be willing to follow to death? What moves your heart to follow Jesus? Is it that you feel like you should follow Jesus? Key word. Like it's your moral obligation to follow Jesus? I mean, in one sense, it is our moral obligation, given his intrinsic worth. But in another sense, when we talk about, well, moral obligation, I can say with the same words that I have a moral obligation to pay my taxes this month. I should pay my taxes. I should follow Jesus. But to put I should, with taxes and Jesus, kind of in the same category as blasphemy, right? Why would you want to follow Jesus? That's the question. And I want to just take a moment to tell you something that you already know, all right? It's one of the great things about um, Palm Sunday and Easter. Hello, we're going to talk about the same things. We get to Easter next week, you're going to hear something about he's risen, right? To go anywhere else just doesn't make sense. So I'm going to tell you what you already know, but I, I, I am hoping that you'll sense in what I'm about to show you the sense of depth and proportion and dimension to it, all right? Because you know Jesus went to the cross on Good Friday, but I want you to sense a, the sense of proportion, dimension, and depth of, of what that means for us. Um, because I, I, want to, I want you to experience why you would want to follow Jesus and, and be willing to trust him with everything in your life. All the goods, all the difficult things, all the highs, all the lows, okay? One of the ways, you know, to, to show the value of something is to compare it to something else. Even the Bible does this. It shows the value of something by comparison. So I want to show you why Jesus is a leader worthy of all of your trust. And one of the ways to do that is to show you how the world leads by comparison, all right? talking about leadership, but um, I think everybody in here would agree that, you know, we do look to leaders to fix things. We elect people to fix things. Presidential elections happen, and we put a guy in office hoping he'll fix things, fix the economy, fix health care, and a whole bunch of other things that are, that are plaguing our country. We want them to fix things. That's what we want. But underneath that leadership to fix things, oftentimes is a motive and a drive that is contradictory. Like, we want a leader who will make the world a better place, make our country a better place, make our state a better place, but oftentimes what drives a leader to do what they do is a contradiction to that. 
Now, Jesus would, would say it like this. He would tell his disciples, listen, when it comes to you leading my people, his apostles, he says, don't do it the way the world does. This is, this is how the world does it, all right? The world leaders, they lord it over people. That is to say that the world's use of authority and power is almost always for one's personal advantage. The use of authority for one's private, personal, or perhaps a small group's advantage to self-promote and self-preserve. So that, 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 that's the heart behind worldly leadership. All right? In other words, it's not for the beneficial good of all, both individuals and the whole. There is this self-promoting, self-preserving desire in worldly leadership. Now, Jesus wasn't the only one to say that. Here are some rather, well, somewhat modern uh, observers who say the same thing about leadership in our country. One of the names that you may, if you've been around a little while, um, that you may remember, uh, a politician, um, I think he's the second longest standing congressman, he's now passed, a man by the name of of Thomas O'Neill Jr., or they called him Tip O'Neill. Anybody remember him? Well, back in 1982, he was quoted as saying this about the political system, especially around election time. And I don't think he meant that as a positive thing. I think it was a negative criticism. He said, and I quote, self-preservation is the first law of politics. Self-preservation. As when it comes right down to it, what's the most important thing? That I get reelected. And that's why watching the polls is very important because you're going to if self-preservation is the first law of politics, then you're going to figure out what position gains the most political ground and votes, and you're going to take that position because self-preservation is the first law of politics, which explains a lot of you know, position shifting amongst people. What will be the most efficient for me getting voted back into office? So when it comes right down to it, he says, the, if I may paraphrase, the first law of politics is get yourself elected, number one. It's not really what's best for the whole people. It's not about truth. It's not about principle. It's how can I keep my job, <laughs> right? So that, that was a 1982 article. So let's fast forward to last November. This is right before Thanksgiving. I'm, I'm reading the New York Times, and I came across this little article, and, and I was like, man, more people should read this because this is so true, um, where the author wrote this about the dirty secret in Washington. He said, the dirty secret, a phrase used independently and privately. Like, people actually use this, this uh, phrase, dirty secret, in Washington um, by people in both parties, Republican and Democrat. We're going to be equal opportunity people right here in terms of politics. Both sides use it. Is, is that neither, here's the dirty secret, neither side wants to take the actions it demands of the other to achieve a breakthrough. Now, the, the article, I couldn't quote the whole thing here for you, but it goes on to say, basically, that, that when it comes right down to it, nobody really wants to rock the boat too hard, because if you rock the boat too hard, you're not going to get elected. So if you're a guy who rocks the boat and says, we need to cut a lot of stuff, well, then you cut a lot of stuff, and next thing you know, or at least you go on record as wanting to cut a lot of stuff, you make a lot of enemies, you don't get back into office. So they don't really want to rock the boat that hard. On the other side, it's like, who wants to raise taxes, right? That's on the other side of the fence. Well, if I'm for raising taxes, that's going to come out, and that's going to make me look bad. So I don't want to rock the boat too hard that way. So the bottom line is, is that you end up with this 
this um, status quo under the pretense of change. And that's, that's the dirty secret. Nobody really wants to change it that much because their jobs are at stake. And this is, you know, this is, this is public. You, you, this is a fascinating little article you ought to read. I'm like, more people should read this. You vote a lot more people out of office. Now, I don't say this, nor do I quote these things to make a political statement. That's not my job. I'm simply drawing out the fact that what Jesus said was true. And that is, the leadership that drives our world is, for the most part, driven by self-promotion and self-preservation. And, if that's the case, if that's the case, and by the way, um, that doesn't, doesn't happen just on a political level, it doesn't happen just in our country, that is a universal truth of a fallen world, led by fallen men, including the church. The same kind of self-centered, self-promoting, self-preserving heart or motive can infect a pastor so that he will do anything to keep his job, even compromise telling the truth. I had a mentor at one time, a professor, who spoke to, I was already a pastor at the time, and he said to us, and I'll never forget what he said because it, it rang really true, but it was harsh. He said to all of us, he looked at us, he says, you pastors, listen to this. He says, if you're not willing to be willing to sacrifice your job to speak the truth that will help your people, you shouldn't be a pastor. And he's basically saying, listen, don't make it about you keeping your job. If that's number one, you're never going to be a great pastor. In fact, you're going to lead without love. Because it's always about the other. It's always about God's people. It's not about the preservation of a job. And I never forgot that. It's like, that's the spirit of a different kind of, of leadership. Now, let me ask you a question. The kind of leader who, when it comes right down to it, is driven, as Jesus says, the worldly leaders are driven by, driven by a desire to self-promote and self-preserve, which means you're willing to compromise to stay number one. Do you trust that kind of person? Is your heart inclined to follow that kind of person? And honestly, really? I'll, I'll, I'll just say it. Absolutely not. Let's even put a heck no under that. I don't trust that, and I wouldn't want to follow that. Because at the end of the day, it's, it's about that person. They're number one. It's not about the greater whole of the community or people. That kind of leadership does not win the heart. It does not win the soul. It does not win loyalty and devotion. Worldly leadership. Now let me talk about our Jesus. Our Jesus comes into Jerusalem on a colt, on a donkey, never been ridden, with a whole parade of his followers saying, you know, blessed is the king who comes in the name of the Lord. Only this king is going to lead in a way that is entirely contrary to the rest of world leadership. And that is he is not going to self-promote, and he is not going to self-preserve. He's going to do something entirely different to show us his heart, to show us the heart of God. Something that draws out our loyalty and our trust and our devotions, like I could follow a king like that. Now, one of the things that, that, that moved my heart and why I chose Luke is because I, I've been meditating in it for about the last 18 months. And, and I came across this, this theme 
that it isn't a new theme. It just gives proportion and dimension to what Jesus did for us that, that I, it just makes me feel the wonder and awe of who he is and draws my heart towards him. It's, in our reading along in the Gospel of Luke, I get to chapter 9. Now, all right, stay with me here. We just read about Jesus entering Jerusalem in chapter 19 of Luke. Way back, 11 chapters earlier, I get to chapter 9, verse 51. There's 11 chapters separating these events, and I read this. When the days drew near for him to be taken up, he, that is Jesus, set his face to go to Jerusalem. That phrase, set his face to go to Jerusalem, just had my riveted attention. This is 11 chapters before he actually gets there. He set his face on going to Jerusalem. That, that means he set his focus, his gaze, the, the determination of his will, his resolve, his I am going to Jerusalem, come hell or high water. I will be there. That's, that's what it means when it says he set his face to go to Jerusalem. You're thinking, what's a big deal going to Jerusalem? Is it going to get a suntan or bathe in the pool of Bethesda or go on vacation, build himself a summer home? It's like, no. Because in the same chapter, just a little bit earlier, Jesus was explicit on what would happen there. In which he told his disciples, the Son of Man, referring to himself, must suffer many things and be rejected by the elders and the chief priests. Those are the power people. Those are the people who are fundamentally self-promoting and self-preserving. And Jesus is going to rock the boat big time. And as a result, he's going to pay for it. Going to suffer rejection, many things and so forth, by the elders, chief priests, and scribes, and be killed. Can't get more explicit. He sets his face, face towards Jerusalem. And that place, according to what he says there in verse 22, is a place of death and suffering. So it's 11 chapters before he arrives in Jerusalem, he has a riveted determination to go to Jerusalem to suffer and die. Now, why would Luke, again, track with me here, because this kind of stuff not only excites me, it fills my soul. Why, why, why would Luke like, tell us way back in chapter 9 that he set his face to Jerusalem where he's supposed to die and, and not have him enter Jerusalem until chapter 19? And if you pay close attention to the little geographical things that take place between 9 and 19, you realize he's tracking a very slow, methodical march to his death. All right? It's not that Jesus didn't know he was going to die before chapter 9. It's that here it becomes explicit. It's his resolve, his determination, and he follows his slow, resolved, willing march to death in Jerusalem. Why would he do that? Lots of reasons, perhaps, but two. One, to show how central, how gargantuan, and how all-important the cross was. It all moves in that direction. All right? All of his teaching, his miracles, they're all moving in that direction. It's central to his life. It's his mission. Sometimes we tend to equalize everything, you know? So you read the Gospels, you're like, hey, Jesus, raise the widow's son. That's so cool. And he made, made a whole bunch of bread and fish out of hardly anything for a whole crowd. Isn't that wonderful? Or, 
You know, he, he cast out the demon. Isn't that sweet? And then, oh, he died. That's a bummer. As if it's all on the field equally. It's like everything is aiming at, everything is flowing towards one event. And I would also include that the whole Testament is all flowing to this one event. And Jesus has his eyes set on it, riveted on this event to accomplish it. The most gruesome, the most horrific event you can possibly imagine. And so, in one sense, I think Luke does this to show us how all central the cross is. And, and even in terms of understanding his teaching and his miracles, they're, they're all connected to that event. So, for example, when Jesus says, you know, blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of God. You see a man stripped naked, stripped of dignity on the, on the cross, and left with absolutely nothing. You see a man who's truly poor in spirit, and a man whom God will exalt to the highest place and give him the kingdom. Even that points to the cross. Or when it says that the greatest commandment is to love the Lord God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength. It's like, you want to see what love for God looks like? Well, you look at a man dying on behalf of his love for his father on a cross, and that is loving the Lord God with all your heart, soul, mind, or strength. Or when you see Jesus cast out a demon, that's just an omen of what's to come when he dies to break the stranglehold of Satan and hell upon God's people. It all points to that event, which we're looking forward to on this Good Friday of crucifixion. The second reason is that it just shows that Jesus is so determined. He knows what's at the end, and yet he is, he is unrelenting. He is taking each step headed towards that very, very painful event, a point at which he will be forsaken by God himself. Anybody here like pain? Next to my wife, I'm a big sissy when it comes to pain. You know, I have huge admiration for you moms out there because, you know, you find out the exciting news that you're pregnant and the, the husband's like, oh, that's awesome. And then nine months down the road, the wife's going, wait a second, this is going to grow and this thing's got to come out of me and it's going to hurt. If I was in that place, I'd be going, I don't know if I ever want to get pregnant because I don't want to face that pain at the end of nine months. That's why I said I'm big sissy next to my wife. <laughs> I've told you this before, I, I, I can't even hardly go to the dentist. That's how much I hate pain. Well, you'll be encouraged to know that, that Jesus knew better than anybody else what it would be like to be crushed. Crushed by man and crushed by his father. And not because of anything he did on his own, but because he bore the mountains Piles upon piles of weight of human depravity on his shoulders. And he chose it, determined and resolved to take every step. Again, that's just adding dimension and proportion. And so when you get to Palm Sunday, Jesus is seen riding into Jerusalem. It's like my long journey is coming to a close. What I have set my eyes on way back in chapter 9 is now coming to fruition. And as the week proceeds on, it gets darker and darker and darker until Thursday night, five days from now, he, he holds up a cup with his disciples and he says, um, 
This cup that is poured out for you is the new covenant in my blood. I'm holding in my hands a cup of suffering that I'm going to drink so you don't have to. I am going to drink the cup of the wrath of God in your place so that you don't have to. I'm going to drink the consequences for your sin so you don't have to. That's the cup. And the only way to be rightly connected to God is those last three words, in my blood. I mean, it's the whole turning point, brothers and sisters. And the only reason we have hope whatsoever, and the only way we can find joy in the fact that we are sinful people is that we're bought and paid for in full by the blood of Jesus. Otherwise, there's nothing but cataclysmic wrath. That's all there is. And Jesus took that cup and he drank it. He drank it and said, this is the blood poured out for you. And you remember what happened next? A couple hours later, he ends up in a dark garden and he's praying to his father, Father, let this cup, cup of suffering, cup of your forsaking me, let it pass from me because it's that oppressive and that weighty and and he says, nevertheless, not mine, but yours. And that was his way of surrendering himself ultimately and finally to his ultimate mission, which was to pay our price. Of course, you know, the next day he followed through. He followed through. He set his face toward Jerusalem, and he followed through. He finished it. And I'll tell you what, if the disciples had understood that when they were in, there in Jerusalem, they would have been singing even more. Like, I can't believe, Hosanna on the highest. Blessed be the name of the Lord, the King, who came to take our place and to die. And I'll tell you, what kind of leader does that? What kind of leader does that? What kind of king does that? I'll tell you, church, with all due respect, Washington and Sacramento will never love you like that. In what he did, he didn't provide a short-term fix, which is all modern leadership can do. No, he made it right with the Lord for all who believe. He took away our shame and the fear of punishment. And he laid the foundation of a whole new world a whole new creation of resurrection itself. There's no one, no one who loves you like that. And as I think about that, what does my heart want to do? And maybe this doesn't connect with you. Maybe it does. So maybe you're feeling in your heart like, yeah, I, I, I could follow that kind of king. Well, that's, your, that's what it should, that's what your heart should do. It's like, absolutely, like, Washington, Sacramento, again, with all due respect, because God has put those things in place as fallen as they are, the fact of the matter is no one loves me like Jesus and like my king who gave his life for me. And so you know what? I'm willing to trust him with everything. Highs, lows, whatever. I'm willing to trust him to the end, to death itself. Why? Because I've, I've never experienced a leader, a king, a God like that. That calls out devotion, loyalty, the Christians are supposed to have.
Not because we should. Because we want to. Never find a king who loves me like that. Who loves you like that. And here we get to celebrate at this Lord's Supper. It's like, I can't believe you did this for me. And our heart's supposed to feel that. And I pray it will feel that as you come. This is what the King of Kings did for you and for me. To take it away and to give us himself. That's the kind of king you want to follow. So it's time for us to partake of communion. And I hope if you don't know this king, this Lord personally, I want nothing more, we want nothing more than for you to know him because it is the best thing in life. And for those who do know him, us, revel in the greatness of our leader king who gave his life for us to take away our sin. If you're new with us or just visiting, if you're a follower of Jesus, because this table is reserved for followers of Jesus who profess faith in him, if you are a follower of Christ, welcome to come and partake of the things that symbolize his dead body and his blood poured out. Um, John is going to start playing some instrumental music and come at will. Um, Three lines, one here and two on the sides, and And you can take it how you wish, with your family, individually, by yourself. But just take this opportunity to just meditate and contemplate. Man, Jesus, you're so good. Right? And and then take it as, 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 as the Spirit leads. In our central aisle right here, we have both regular bread and gluten-free bread for those who have allergies. Um, So feel free, if that is a particular issue for you, to to come to the central aisle. And um, also off to both sides. We're going to have people there to pray for you if you'd like to be prayed for for something. Um, it's our joy to lift you up to the Lord and intervene on your behalf and, and to pray with or for you. So um, I'm going to pray now, and um, as, as the Lord leads, come forward. Gracious Father, we are so grateful for your loving kindness and faithfulness, your steadfast love and faithfulness shown to us in the death of Jesus. We're thankful that your heart is so big, so overflowing, so gracious, so merciful that you would come and take our place so that we could have you, that we could have life, that we could have forgiveness, that we could have wholeness again, a healing both now and forevermore. So bless this time, Lord, as we partake of the bread and the cup and bless us through it in Jesus' name.
Oh, Lord, thank you. Thank you that Jesus, the King of kings, is made known to us by grace and that we can lift up praise to him. Jesus came to glory That pursues man with his love And haunts me with each hearing Of his awful spoken word My conscience a reminder Oh, of forgiveness that I need is this King of glory He offers it to me Who is this King of angels Oh blessed Prince of peace Revealing things of heaven mystery Just be 